Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Caitlin Hendrick. I say her last name wrong in the beginning of the podcast, even though she said it four seconds earlier. Caitlin is the daughter of a very, very experienced hunter. And their family technically is in the outdoor industry because they run a high-fenced operation west of San Angelo, Texas. The property and the management and the care of the animals on this property is second to none. It was impeccable when we drove around it. So I wanted to get Caitlin's perspective as a young woman, she's 25, being raised in a family or being raised under a dad that hunted as much as her dad did and got into the business line of high-fenced hunting in West Texas. All right, so let's give some context here. Name? Caitlin. Hendrick. This is an audio medium, so you have to speak, okay? Okay. Caitlin Hendricks, um, raised a hunter? Raised around hunting. I am actually, I would consider myself for 
people in Texas who have a dad that's as big of a hunter as mine, I would say I actually got into it a little bit late. Why do you think that was? Um, I might have been a little rebellious and decided to not do what my dad did. And then I did it. And then I loved it and fell in love with it. Just decided. So just because it was something that dad liked, you just said like, mm, that's not what I'm going to do. Or there was a, a more something beyond, beyond it that's like, ah, I just don't want to deal with killing animals. No, it was never about the killing of animals. I think um, originally where we had property and would hunt most of the time there, for example, wasn't a bathroom. It was a three-bedroom cabin, um, and like a fifth wheel was the bathroom. So as the only girl who would ever be out here, you know, it's not as fun to have to deal with the elements without running water. So I think that was a part of it. And then um, my grandfather added on to the cabin and we now have, you know, quite really nice facilities. And um, I think that helped. I think I got a little bit older. I started understanding um, what was happening and I just grew to have an appreciation for it that I don't think I had. Do you think there would be maybe, and I apologize, this may be a sexist statement, but do you think there would be more female hunters that would be introduced to hunting or come into hunting earlier if they had amenities? Like you say, it was just like, shit, because normally it's just for the guys, right? I mean, yeah, there's definitely like, for it's a lot easier for a guy to go use the restroom and or leave themselves out in the wild than a girl. It's just kind of some other things that go into it that you got to get comfortable with or not. Um, so I think amenities, I think comfortability is another big part of it. Um, I know this question itself wasn't sexist, but sometimes the industry can kind of feel that way. For example, I really hate pink camo. I think it's really stupid. I want true camo if I'm going to be hunting. Um, Legit statement right there. <laughs> I want real clothes. There's. Um, you want clothes I that think, fit you? That fit. When I was little, that's the. When I was little, I would either wear um, my dad's clothes that were way too big for me, and just like a pair of blue jeans. Or I'd go to the like little boys section and have to buy little boys pants because there's no there's no camo pants for a little girl. They don't exist. Mm. Even now, as I'm a young adult. Um, How old are it's you? 25. Okay. It's it's hard to find women's clothing that is functional for hunting. There's clothing, but it doesn't have, for example, functional pockets. Women's clothing never has functional pockets. But even in camo pants and in hunting. Um, there's not the big pockets that you have to hold everything that you need to hold. There's not different um, thicknesses of pants. Or there's pants that are really loud that you don't want to wear in the brush. And it's just things that aren't quite as functional as hmm. um, they make for men. To this day, I still face the issue of finding clothes. I have multiple women in my life um, or people my age that have gotten into hunting that don't consider me an expert necessarily, but know that this is something that I love and I do frequently. And they come to me for clothing advice. And I tell them, honestly, I can't give them a good brand. I can't just say my clothing is all pieced together from different jackets that I found here that works, but then this pair of pants works. Um, right. It's just not, or it's size small, medium, and large. And nothing in women's clothing is size small, medium, and large. Mm -hmm. There's too much of a differentiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really hard. So you talked about... You said the industry. Would you consider yourself in the industry? I would, because of the 
business that my family um, operates, I would say that, yeah, we're in the industry. Okay. And you've also gone and done some hunting-related work in New Zealand. Yep. I've worked at a hunting lodge in New Zealand. Um, I've been personally hunting in South Africa. So, yeah. Are you... Let me ask this. Is there... Do you is do you think there's a perception around women hunters in the outdoor industry? One hundred percent. Really? One hundred percent. I know, for example, I my first rifle that I got, I was twelve years old, and it's pink and purple tie dyed. And that's what I took the first time I went to South Africa hunting for myself at eighteen years old. I still had a pink and purple gun, but it's the gun I was used to. It was comfortable. It's actually a custom made gun because I am only Five two. I'm quite small framed, mm-hmm. so um, and that's another thing is guns are rather large and heavy for the average women to hold. I would say um, to carry around to spot and stock. So I had a my dad had a gun made for me, and it like I said, it's what I've shot pretty much to this day. Almost every animal that I've but it's um, pink. harvested with. I thought you don't wear things that are pink. It's more purple than pink. I like purple. <laughs> it's the pink that really gets me. <laughs> so if you had purple in your camera, you'd be okay with it. No, I still want functional camo clothing. <laughs> it's like, even like if you try to buy a pair of gloves, they're pink. Why? Why do my gloves need to be pink? Mm-hmm. Why does my hearing protection need to be pink? Anything advertised to women in hunting, knives, guns, backpacks, it's all pink. Hmm. But isn't that what women want? No, not all women. I would say there's a subset of women that might want that, but there's also... A bigger population of women that I think want to get into hunting, but they want to do it right. Um, and so that means having the right gear, the right clothing, the right equipment. Um, it means having the knowledge and the um, confidence. I think confidence is a big thing. And that's kind of how we started on this tangent about why I didn't get into hunting at first. And um, is it more industry based or whatever, what the perception kind of is in women and hunting. And I think women having the confidence. Um, not only for hunting, but handling guns is a, not a problem, but it's something that needs to be addressed and people have to... How do you address that? Education. So whether it be, like for me, like eventually, like I did sit down and have those conversations with my dad. I got my first rifle. We went to the range and we practiced and we practiced. Um, and eventually I did harvest my first deer. But um, if you don't have a dad that you grew up... Or that, and so you didn't grow up around hunting... I think it's a hard industry to kind of just say, yeah, I want to get into hunting mm. until, you know, maybe you're do you think the bar? Do you think the bar, is, the bar is high? The entry-level bar into hunting is pretty high. If you've never done it, if, like, you are 25 now and decided tomorrow you were going to start hunting, do you think the bar is higher for women versus men? I don't know that the bar is higher. I think it's harder to break into. Almost any guy I would say could pick up the phone and call someone that they know who's a hunter and go. I think for women, that's a lot harder. I think a lot of women get into it, like I said, because of their dad or women that are getting into it, um, you know, maybe in their later years or because of their husband. And whether it's because they go on hunting trips and gain an appreciation or because they just want to understand what their husband does and why he's so passionate about it. Um, I think that's kind of how the two main avenues I would say that how you break into hunting. And so it's definitely a hard, if you don't have those connections in your life, it's a hard thing to kind of get into. So I wouldn't say the bar is higher. I think it's harder to kind of just get into (laughs) to begin with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
when you think about this process, so the reason we're here, the reason we're talking, is that you are third generation, fourth generation. Have we thought that third? Fourth, my great granddad, my mom's granddad. So yeah, my great granddad originally brought the, bought the property for my granddad. Okay, so fourth generation, mm-hmm. and it's a high fence. It is a high fence. Uh, you have any problems hunting behind a high fence? Not when it's done properly. What problems? Okay. When, when is the situation not done properly? I think, um, you know, a lot of it comes kind of back to ethics. And so you still want to know that the animals are taken care of, obviously, first and foremost, but also that the land is taken care of. Um, and you want to know that they're living a life. They're not just in a pen somewhere and you're hunting for basically just fun or just sport. There's a lot more, I think, that goes into that. Those are definitely pieces of it. Um, but I think that when hunting is done properly behind a high fence and ethically, properly is not the right word, ethically. That, responsibly. Uh, responsibly. That's an even better word. That, like I said, people are taking care of the land and the animals and they understand what they're doing and they're doing it with the right intent. I think intent is a big piece of it. Um, So we hunt here behind a high fence, but everything we do is um, very thought out decision. Intention by you or intention by the hunter? I think both. I think the property owner. How do you control the intent of the hunter? You can't. You can't. You can't. But I think the property owner right, can. Right, I agree. And that's what we can control here. Yep. So we, um, it's more about management for us than anything. On a high fence, there is, um, you know, the, the animals can't leave. They are behind a fence. So you have to manage the herd, um, manage your resources. There's only a limited number of resources when they're in an enclosed area. So making sure the population size and the amount of feed and the access to water is all there is a really big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So four generations of Hendrix, probably not Hendrix, but you know what I'm saying. Because that's your dad's last name. This is going to land in your lap one day. Yep. That, that would be the goal. <laughs> and your dad gave me a statistic, which is quite frightening. That currently, this property, it costs just to feed the animals almost 200k a year. Yep, I've heard that. It's, it's a big number. How do you do that in the future? Like, there's, there's investments here, right? The animals are. are really an investment. Yes, it's something you like to look at. It's something that, that is part of the landscape. The whitetail, for instance. But let's hope we don't get jacked up by a a hornet right now. Um, But it's doable. It's doable. And there's ways to cut back. Um, For example, my dad is always improving roads. Um, Again, every once in a while, you do have to bring in a new herd bull um, for different species. And so... Um, but like you said, all the animals are investment, so you can 
get rid of some animals and sell them off. Um, you can feed less or feed at different times of the year when the animals need it the most. Um, so there's different ways you can do to cut some cost. And I mean, ultimately it goes back to management. So he manages the land and the animals very closely and carefully. Um, like I said, the road work is part of that, but you cannot do that and it would cut back on some of your cost um, immediately. And so, you know, when I one day may eventually be running this land, it might not look exactly the way that my dad does mm -hmm. it. And that's, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think as long as, um, again, the intent um, is still there and it's still good intent and you're still trying to properly manage the land and responsibly take care of these animals that you now have um, on your property. What would you say to the person who looks at you that hunts behind a high fence as someone that is unethical, that is someone that is, ah, oh, it's just easy. You've chosen the easy way out. Um, first of all, I would encourage them to come out and tell me if it's easy. I think that, you know, we did high fence it um, back in 2012. So that was almost 10 years ago now. And, you know, at first we did bring in some genetics. Um, and so a lot of bread dough or a couple of different bucks from a couple of different age classes just to start to build up um, a good range of age classes across our herd. But, um, you know, for the most part, after that, we haven't brought any in, any new deer in. Again, occasionally you might bring in just one deer for some new genetics or whatever. But for the most part, every animal, every whitetail that is out here now, um, I would say 99% of them have been born and raised here. And, like, at what point are they still considered, like, genetically enhanced deer? Like, they still have that potential, yes. And then we, in addition, feed protein, yes. But they are now in the pasture, and they are wild animals. Now, just so that everyone, when listening to this podcast, when you say pasture, it's not an open field that is green grass till the eye can see. Because that's what people think about, right? When I hear pasture, I hear cattle pasture. That's true. No, most of the area on the property um, is still has either the native or the, um, you know, previously introduced plants and wildlife that is. When you say pasture, you just mean a certain confined area that is fenced. Certain confined area. Yes. So we do have some fields where we do plant um, in the summer and winter um, to provide additional feed. But for the most part, the natural brush cover is still here. And so. Um, animals are living in it just like they would on a low fence. There is um, never a guarantee that you will see an animal once, much less a second or third time. And so I think um, coming out, yes, you will see deer. That is a fact. But to find a certain deer is near impossible. And even sometimes to find the right age class and the right maturity mm. class can be mm. a challenge. It's not easy. That's why I would encourage the person to come out and try it. I um, think what your dad said was quite... Um, poignant in that he said I think the difference between high fence and low fence let me let me hear if you agree with me or not or agree with you dad difference between high fence and low fence is on a low fence and a high fence you both have a blind true uh, on a high fence and low fence you both have a feeder true on a high fence you're probably going to see depending on the property 10 times maybe even 20 times the amount of animals than you would in a low fence. 
That is probably a fair statement. Maybe um, skewed to bucks. You'll see a lot more mature, a lot more good animals on a high fence than you would on a low fence. That is a true statement. Now, the thing that, that it was very good at what he said was, but that doesn't mean that everything you see is now shootable. That is also true. That's, I think, a big part of having the high fence is, like you said, a lot of the factors are still the same, except for you actually have more responsibility now as a property owner with a high fence. Because they can't leave, you have to ensure that the, pro- the resources are there. So whether that be the feed, whether that be the water, um, and just keeping the um, number of animals down to a manageable number for the mm-hmm. um, land. You can't, you can't overrun the land. You can't just have an unlimited amount of animals because there's only a limited amount of resources mm-hmm. on the land. So I think that um, there's a lot more responsibility on a high fence owner to manage their herds and manage them properly. Like I said, I mentioned age classes earlier. You want to have bucks that are older, that are younger, that are everywhere in between so that you have a healthy population of deer um, so that when the older generations die, either from being harvested and hunted or from old age occasionally, that there's younger bucks to take their place and that they get to grow up and mature um, and reach their full potential as well. Yeah. I think what, he, what, was, what was great about what your dad said was, we can hear that he has arrived, um, was that you may see a three-year-old 180-class deer. Absolutely. And people are going to go, oh, no, we're going to shoot that, which would happen in the low fence. Uh, you could see a lot smaller of a deer, but still at three and a half. But if it has horns and it's 10 points, uh, people will shoot it. Because, again, there's less onus on that responsibility and that ownership for that animal to make sure that they get to grow to their full potential. Um, but to the counter, even that three and a half year old 180 is not getting shot. No. It, we, we let them grow. We've, over the years, have figured out that um, bucks are at their prime, um, depending on the bucket, about four and a half years old or five and a half. Um, and before we high fenced the place, I don't think we ever saw deer that old. Mm. And it's because even if you, as a low fence um, property owner or leaser, are doing everything right, if the people around you or everyone who hunts on your property also isn't on the same page, then it doesn't matter what you do. You can't control everybody. Like I said, we mentioned earlier, you can't control the intent of hunters. And so if they want a big buck and a big buck walks in, it doesn't matter necessarily how old it is to certain people. And I think that's um, the difference in a high fence is you can control that. And so we will not shoot three and a half year old deer unless it's for management purposes. Like if it's a beautiful three and a half year old deer, we want to let it grow to four and a half and five and a half and see what it does those two years. Again, assuming we ever see it, you never... You never know, right. but that, that's the goal, and that's the idea, is to let them grow up and reach their full potential, and it's amazing what um, the animals can do when you give them that chance. And then you blend in the idea that you've got exotics running around the property. How many exotics do you have on the property? Oh, I think we are up to 35, 36 species mm-hmm. I now. think it's 32. I was testing you. Your mom knows exactly the number. The number. We've, we've cut back. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how cool would is it that you... Someone who does decide to come hunt here, or even you get to hunt here, but someone coming in from the outside would sit in that blind and have the opportunity to see animals that are, number one, endangered or extinct in their native ranges. Yep. Like your Pier David, your Barasingas, Addicts, 
Attic. Yeah. Um, and those, you know, those aren't getting, you know, you're specifically going to shoot one of those animals or two of those animals, again, defined by your management protocols and your, your management objectives. But all the females associated with those animals, nobody's shooting those. You can. Sometimes they make great um, meat animals or you can... Uh, yeah, but not when, they're, not when the value of the market is $40,000 for a kudu cow. At that point, they become an asset, like you said, an investment. Exactly. But I would say it has been, I've brought um, different groups of friends out throughout the years, and it's been really cool to um, tell them about all these animals. And the Pierre David is a big one just because they are aquatic animals, and so they're always in our ponds, and people just think it's the craziest thing to see these deer literally splashing around or just sleeping in the pond. Mm -hmm. And then to explain, like you said, kind of their backstory, like they came from China. They're, they were almost extinct in China. Mm -hmm. There was one herd left, and um, every uh, Pierre David living now came from this like one little herd that was left. And so um, having that knowledge is something I wouldn't even have personally known unless we would have high-fenced it and had the opportunity to bring in these animals. But now being able to share that with other people um, is amazing. Have you had any of your friends that were non-hunters or didn't really have an idea? I had a ton of friends that are non-hunters, um, especially when I went off to college. I went people from all over the United States, and so hunting was a very new subject to a lot of them. And um, some people I got to bring out here, and some people I never had the chance. But I definitely had these conversations with them when I could, and when they were willing to listen and sit down and have the conversation about why do I hunt, what what does it mean. What um, was the most common like perception changing piece that you got from them? Do you, do you, can you think of that? Like the thing that they kept on saying, wow, I never knew. I think, um, I mean, the conservation, the management that has, has to go into it, I think is a big piece. Um, and like you said, I've had the opportunity to have a couple of different experiences um, around the world hunting. And so being able to speak to each of those a little bit, like whether it be um, in Africa, talking about how much of the animals truly used and how much it can mean to and villages when um, some of the larger animals do get taken like it gives food to a village for you know a year um and then versus like our place obviously like it's not just talking about the fact that it's a family property and like all the memories that I have here but um just what I've learned and what I've gained um as far as just the different species um the knowledge of land I mean I can my dad's made me basically memorize, for example, all of the trees that are out here that are native. Um, which ones aren't? What trees take a lot of water? What don't? Um, learning the lay of the land. Um, there's just so much knowledge that comes from being out here and managing the land and doing it responsibly. And I think that's probably a big thing that non-hunters do appreciate is when you can speak to the ethics and responsibility of what you're doing knowing that you can't just kill anything that walks in knowing that there is some um, intentional management that happens whether it be for ages um, whether an animal's hurt and it, you just know it won't survive the winter whether it's I mean there's just so many different things that go into it and I think that you know for the most part a lot of people just think that it's a sport and it's fun and that's not always the case. There's so much more that goes into it. Um, and I haven't even mentioned the fact that we're obviously putting food in the freezer. Um, I recently 
moved back to Fort Worth and I realized for the first time that in a long time that I would have to go to a grocery store and actually buy beef because when I'm with my parents, we always have um, some sort of venison and game mm-hmm. meat in the freezer. And it's, I mean, especially during COVID when grocery stores are running out of things or people are really worried about it um, because we have the opportunity to have this ranch and um, be able to take animals from it um, to put food on the table was, you know, something that I kind of took for granted there for a second before I moved back off sure. and living on my own now. And so knowing that um, I think it also helps non-hunters know that like, even if we personally are not taking the meat, it is going to somebody. Mm-hmm. We're using the animals. Um, our taxidermist, for example, has a partnership with a program that I believe feeds um, veterans. And so you take the animal um, and you can donate the meat and it goes to veterans or some yeah, other great. organization. And so, yeah, it's not just putting food on my family's table, but other families' tables. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I mean, that's a big part of hunting. I love the taste of venison. I think it's better than beef now. Like, I prefer it. And I think it always helps knowing that it's not just to hang something pretty on the wall. And not everything gets hung on the wall. Like I said, there's a lot of management that goes into mm-hmm. it. Well, I appreciate you sharing a little piece of your paradise with us. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Cheers. I hope, uh, I hope this... Uh, I know that this podcast has probably changed some perceptions. Because it's very rare, and I'll say this, it's very rare to get a mid-twenties female to sort of elucidate things around property ownership and management and whatnot, because there's not many of you. (laughs) There's not many, and I wouldn't have, like I said, without having this piece of property, um, I wouldn't know half the things that I know today. I was just actually telling my mom earlier that for, you know, the first part of my life, I probably had a greater appreciation for conservation in South Africa than I did in Texas because Mm. we didn't have this place and we weren't doing the active management that we do today. Mm -hmm. And since we have high fenced it, I mean, I'm going to be on, that's why, that's why we have to management as closely as we do now. And before, like I said, even when we had our low fence, we were still trying to do our part, but you never quite saw the benefits that we do today. and so, yeah, being able to be out here with my family is also a great perk, but it's taught me so much about the land and a greater appreciation for um, the resources, the land, the animals. And then my dad, who takes the time to learn all of this, to pass it on mm-hmm. to me, to um, pass it on to other people, any chance he gets mm-hmm. when we have visitors come out here. He loves telling people about this place and what it means mm-hmm. to him, what hunting means to mm-hmm. him. and yeah. Man, he's a super quiet individual, very reserved. <laughs> he is. He's just never can get him to talk, say much. Exactly. No, he's absolutely the opposite of that. And this, he's the best version of himself out here, I think. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.